Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I'm privileged to serve as your weekly host and interviewer. Today we have a very special collection of guests to talk about a very topical subject, which is re-entering, re-emerging into the workplace in the midst of some of the loosening up of social distancing rules around the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a multi-part interview. So grab a cup of coffee, pour yourself a glass of wine if you're watching in the afternoon and sit back. And we hope that you can take away some fantastic tips, ideas, strategies from the wisdom of our next several guests. I'd like to start this multi-interview series by welcoming Joanna Garrity, who serves as the president and COO of JetBlue Airways. Joanna, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I know that you are carving out about 20 minutes for us in the, in the midst of a very hectic, hectic Memorial Day weekend, hopefully some air travel re-emerging. Before we get to some of the insights you can share on how JetBlue is re-entering into the workforce, would you share a little bit of your history? You've been with JetBlue for 15 years. You were the chief people officer prior to that, I think on the legal side. Give us a little bit of the context for your career, both inside JetBlue and perhaps even before that. Sure, uh, so I'm a lawyer, um, so don't hold that against me. A lawyer, I was a partner at uh, Holland and Knight, a large uh, national law firm, and moved into JetBlue back in 2005 into our legal team and held a variety of roles across JetBlue, including uh, chief people officer for four years, head of customer experience. So I ran all of our airports, our customer facing teams in flight and reservations. Um, and then I'm, I've most, most recently been into this role, uh, president and chief operating officer, where I have responsibility for all of our commercial functions and all of our operating functions. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of being with JetBlue through a number of very uh, unique moments in its history. Um, back in 2007, we had um, a bit of an operational crisis, so I was with JetBlue then, and then obviously through the 2008 economic downturn, um, and then now obviously through the coronavirus pandemic. Jorita, we're going to move immediately into some of the uh, practical tips you have, but first, it's unusual, remarkable really for a chief people officer to move into the president COO role. You don't see that a lot. Tell me any special talents that you think you brought to that transition for others who might be in the you know, people side of the business looking to also move into the operational side. Anything, any insight you'd share with our viewers and listeners? Sure. You know, I think that, you know, a, a company is its people. And I think that experience running our human resources department, those functions was invaluable to me. Um, not only did I manage a very large team, um, but also you have enterprise responsibility for so many different functions that cut across the entire organization. And I think it, it gives you a real appreciation for um, the um, opportunities, the challenges, the struggles, the importance of talent, um, and that, you know, your most important and valuable asset are really um, is really your team and the people that work at your company. And I think you know, that provides um, a very good grounding um, as you take on different roles across the company because you realize inspiring and motivating and making sure that uh, your team is on the same page with what you want to accomplish as, a, as an organization is, is frankly probably one of the most basic um, leadership um, skills uh, that um, any executive needs to have. Well, it's great to hear at JetBlue that not only does HR have a seat at the table, HR right now has the seat at the table. So <laughs> it's really encouraging to your culture. L let's get in. You, in many ways, JetBlue isn't re-emerging because like many frontline healthcare workers, you all have been thriving since day one and have not ceased operations. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like the last you know, two and a half, three months at JetBlue as you both keep operations 
functioning, but also look at the protection and health of your employees and your customers and all the people that work around you. What, what has the last almost 90 days been like at JetBlue? Sure, I think I describe it as being incredibly dynamic. Um, you know, nobody anticipated the pandemic um, coming in quite as it did and quite as quickly as it did. And I think the first thing you see are, is fear among um, among our, our crew members, our, our work for employees, among our customers, and then revenue went to, to nearly zero overnight. And so you have a combination of personal fear, um, health fear, um, fear for your family, coupled with um, fear for your job. And, you know, I think that emotional and, um, and financial instability can be so unsettling for anybody. Um, and you know, our job as leaders at JetBlue, at least, has been to you know try as best we can to pivot and move as different circumstances arose. Um, and it seems like every week something new and more more challenging came about. And make sure that we were communicating to our crew members um, what we knew at the time. I think uncertainty has been one of the biggest challenges. Um, uncertainty around the industry and when demand will come back. Um, uncertainty around, you know, will people have jobs in the fall after um, the CARES Act, which we're fortunate enough to have, have been a recipient of that after the CARES Act runs out. You know, what does that mean for our people? And um, and it's been it's been just an incredibly dynamic um, and challenging circumstance. And, you know, I look at our, our team on the front line and they've had to work through this entire pandemic as we started to build in safety measures, um, as we started to put in different precautions for them. And it's, it's been frightening for them. We've lost um, we've lost six crew members to the virus. Um, we've had a number of crew members obviously come down with the virus. Our main support center is based in New York City. Um, so, you know, we're literally at ground zero. Um, but, you know, I think through all those challenges, this inner strength that is, um, frankly, what's fueled JetBlue since its earliest days has really emerged. And I can tell you that our people have been so inspiring um, throughout the event. And, and I think that has helped so many of our leaders um, really rise to the occasion and and realize that they, you know, they need to go that extra mile. Joanna, thank you for that. Will you speak to the many millions of business leaders, operators, company owners who are responsible for re-emerging their employees into the workforce? Might be actually virtually or for that matter in physical facilities. Are there some lessons that JetBlue could share with our viewers and listeners on what you have done, what you're planning to do, what are some of the protocols and precautions that you're taking to make sure that as really people come back into buildings to make sure that everybody is fully functional, um, safe, but also that you're maintaining your culture and, and, and profitability? Sure. So, you know, I think I'd, I'd first say health is it's critically important. You need to have a program that provides for sick time off for coronavirus. Um, you need to have a program that can address um, the, the realities of childcare and, and schools not reopening. Um, you need to have a tracing uh, system, a contact tracing system and notification protocols. If somebody gets the coronavirus in the workplace, the expectation among employees should be that the employer tells, you know, those who that person has come into close contact with um, that they, have, in fact, may have been exposed. I think you have to have a solid plan around your health benefits um, as well. And I think that is very foundational. And then and then you turn to some of the physical and infrastructure protections that need to be in place, um, everything from an ensuring social distancing in the workplace, um, limiting the number of people in a conference room. You know, if you have a high density office space, that's just not going to work um, for the foreseeable future. Um, obviously, all of the cleanliness and hygiene issues, um, you know, having cleaners, which are frankly, throughout this whole event, you know, the unsung heroes, frankly, yeah. um, you yeah. know, as you think about that function, um, but having cleaners in place, um, both to make sure the space is clean, but also there's an optics component to things as well um, to make people feel comfortable. Um, social distancing cues, signage, touchless features, 
um, as the case may be, and where you can put those on touchless doors. Um, you know, we're doing temperature checks um, at our um, our training center, and we'll be rolling out temperature checks across our operation over the next several weeks. And while that may be um, not necessarily indicative of whether somebody has the coronavirus, it can be indicative of whether somebody is sick. And at the end of the day, you don't want people coming to your office that are sick. And we all have an obligation to make sure that we're monitoring our own health and not bringing that into the workplace. And I think that's going to be an increasingly important aspect. I mean, I know I've come to work sick before with a cough, a cold, and you start thinking about the potential position you put your colleagues in when you when you show up sick. And those, those just aren't going to fly in the foreseeable future. Joanna, speaking of temperature checks, can you speak to, is that like taking someone's temperature with a thermometer? Is it a thermal scanner? What, what advice would you give all those who are facing the same right now? Anything you can share around that topic? Sure. We've looked at a variety of measures. We looked at the thermal scanners. We've looked at the, um, the ones that, you know, that go, go on your head. We've right. looked at asking crew members to take their temperature before they come to work and self-certify. Uh, the ones that we will be using and are using in our training center are the disposable uh, thermometers that you would use when you when you get blood. Um, they're actually highly reliable. Uh, they're disposable, which is good. And a crew member comes in, they take their temperature, and then um, we have a process where uh, we just validate that it's no greater than 100.4. And then they receive a text message back that says you're cleared for the day, um, and you just keep that with you. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a process that we just rolled out uh, last week. We're monitoring it um, to, to see how effective it is. It's, it's currently being used on a rather small scale for just our initial wave of folks coming through training. And the plan is to roll that out uh, for our uh, support centers where our corporate individuals are. Um, you know, I'm happy to talk about that. That's a little bit of a different plan. And then our pilots are in flight um, and our airports crew members longer term. The disposable one's actually quite effective. And um, from a cost perspective, it, it's uh, pretty reasonable. Joanna, this conversation is surreal because you sound like a public health expert, which I'm guessing you don't claim to be and you won't opine on that. <laughs> what, what have you done to upgrade your knowledge and your skill and, frankly, to be able to speak so eloquently about this topic that I'm sure you had little to no expertise on 90 days ago? Any insights, resources, other colleagues that you've drawn upon that others listening and watching could go to to have the same level of information that you're now able to repeat to us on air? We very early hired an infectious disease specialist um, on um, on call uh, for JetBlue, and that um, individual has been incredibly um, instrumental in educating um, all of all of the leaders who are, are you know very involved in this. But also, we've set up pocket sessions for our frontline crew members so they can call in and ask the doctor any questions that they have. They've been incredibly successful, and we run our plans by him and ask him to offer his views on what's effective and what isn't effective. Um, you know, one example is to wear, you know, facial covering or not. That has been a hot issue. We require it across our operation and our support centers. We were the first airline to require customers to wear facial coverings. You know, he was very instrumental in having us understand the pros and the cons behind that. The same thing with temperature testing, um, understanding what does it mean to um, to socially distance and understand the difference between airborne illnesses and surface-borne uh, illnesses. So um, I, I would recommend any company um, hire a credible and qualified infectious disease specialist because it will help you learn about how the coronavirus um, works. And and frankly, we're all learning. We don't know everything about it by, by a wide margin, but um, also help you run your plans um, by him so that you feel that at least there's a, an independent person with a health background that um, can let you know if you're missing anything and if the, the plans that you have, are, um, are they make sense. 
To that point, I've been reading a lot about a trend that's happening now where companies are in, installing and stealing a CHO, a chief health officer. Do you yep. see JetBlue moving in that direction ongoing? Because I'm guessing this won't be the only pandemic we'll face perhaps again in our lifetime. Uh, what insight do you have on that? So we, um, as an operating company and airline, we have a large safety department. And, um, and I would expect in the future that the health function within our safety department will continue to expand. Um, it is critically important, particularly um, until there's a, a vaccine or a therapeutic treatment. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a great, a great idea. It's particularly relevant now. Um, and I think crew members and employees appreciate it because it lets them know that you're putting their health first and that you're, you're relying on somebody who's knowledgeable about these issues. It's not just what you read in the newspaper or see on the media. And so much of that is, you know, questionable uh, nowadays. So. Joanna, talk about what it's like to board a JetBlue airplane. Uh, as a longtime traveler, two million plus miles in my own career, none in the last, of course, 90 days. What can a, a passenger at JetBlue expect to, to look like once perhaps they land at the airport? Walk us through sure. the JetBlue travel experience right now. Sure. So you arrive at the airport, there's a lot less people, um, unfortunately, but um, a lot less people. Um, everybody, uh, and again, I'm looking at, I was at the airport two weeks ago in New York, so New York may be slightly different than other places around the United States, um, New York being sort of the epicenter of um, the pandemic. Uh, but we walked into the JFK terminal and everybody has facial covering on. Um, we've removed some of our crew members from some of the hospitality roles and they are largely behind um, counters um, just to reduce the touch points. Yeah. Um, the security checkpoint largely empty and everybody is maintaining a level of social distancing so you don't have anybody really standing too closely to, to anyone else. Um, you, you go through the terminal. Um, a lot of the concessions are unfortunately closed um, because you want to continue to reduce those touch points and at least in New York there's still prohibitions around um, restaurant eating in restaurants. Any buffet um, is closed. So a limited number of, of concessions, but you know, adequate for, um, for a flight. Um, as you walk through the terminal, um, it's incredibly clean. Um, and I will say, I think that's something that frankly is good that's come from all of this is, is just a greater attention to hygiene and cleanliness. And I think that that's fundamentally a good thing and similar to security provisions that um, followed 9-11, um, um, I think hygiene and cleanliness will follow and stay with us um, post uh, pandemic. So the airport's incredibly clean. Um, you've got um, a lot of customers in with facial coverings most, and then others have some outfits on as well, um, because I think there's frankly an apprehension um, to fly, which is understandable. As you um, enter the, um, the gate area, uh, you will be scanning your boarding pass by yourself. So our crew members are trying to encourage customers to self-scan their boarding passes. There are Purell dispensers throughout. Um, if you do not have a facial covering on JetBlue, we will provide one to you and you will be asked to ensure that you have that on while you board and in flight. If you do not wear a facial covering on JetBlue, you will not be permitted to board an aircraft. Um, as you board the aircraft, um, you, uh, you get on and you'll note the plane is incredibly clean. Um, every airline has enhanced their cleaning procedures, whether it's on the overnight or on the turn cleans. Our crew members will all have facial coverings on. We are uh, blocking the middle seat on our aircraft to provide a level of physical distancing. Um, so that allows customers to have a bit, a bit of space unless you're traveling together. Um, so you will be either in a, um, an aisle or a window seat. There is not a onboard service typical uh, to what you, know, you may be used to. Um, there will be a bag onboard the aircraft, a bottle of water and prepackaged snacks. Our in-flight crew members will come through and collect 
um, any service items, but there isn't a full onboard service. Um, and, you know, you will be asked throughout the flight to keep your facial covering on so that if um, if you're feeling ill or you sneeze or you cough, we can reduce those those airborne particles. Um, and then obviously you, you arrive at your destination and um, and you disembark the plane and, and go about your, your daily business. You know, I have been asked, you know, for those who are afraid to fly, what would I, you know, what, what would I say? And, and I, you know, I think I would, what I what I do say, and I'll be flying to Boston next week, is flying is no um, no different than any other activity um, you would go about as you leave your house and go outside. Um, and when you look at all the, the precautions that airlines have put into place, whether it's requiring facial coverings, whether it's uh, blocking a middle seat, which JetBlue is doing, whether it's reducing any of the service touch points on the aircraft, whether it's the increased cleanliness, um, you know, all of those uh, those safety measures work together in a layered approach to try to mitigate um, any any risk that you might um, have as you leave your house. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's it's as safe as as walking out and going to the grocery store, and and perhaps even safer given how many precautions we've now put into place to protect um, the health of our customers. It's greatly reassuring to hear you walk through that because I can I could now after listening to you envision if I had to fly somewhere, I would definitely pick um, JetBlue. <laughs> so Thank you. <laughs> walk us through a couple more thoughts before we um, end our time today. What are you struggling with that you don't yet have an answer for that perhaps other organizations are facing the same things and what's your process on how to overcome kind of the unexpected yet? Yeah, you know, I'd say I think the big elephant in the room for JetBlue uh, is with regard to our support center crew members. So those who work in an office, we have a high density office in New York City. And um, and what does it look like? What does work look like as um, stay at home orders are lifted? And, you know, our crew members all read the news about, you know, Facebook and other um, companies uh, indicating that, you know, individuals won't have to come back uh, until the end of the year or maybe never. Um, and, and we're working through what does that look like for an operating company? You know, we have 23,000 crew members, the vast majority of which have worked throughout this pandemic. And in fact, in our main support center in New York, that's where our operations center is located. And we've had a group of heroic crew members who have come every day to the office. Um, we put a number of precautions in place for them, um, but have come every day to the office throughout this pandemic to make sure that the airline could keep flying. And so as you start thinking about our, our support staff who have the ability to work at home um, and work remotely, um, we're trying to figure out what that looks like for them. Um, we know that we're not gonna be able to bring everybody back um, because of the manner in which our office is set up. We know there's gonna be limits on the number of folks who can come back. We've done a survey to our corporate workforce and there's a lot of fear out there. Um, fear of taking public transportation, fear of sitting next to somebody who may be sick, um, fear about uh, financial situation, fear about what to do with your children if they're not going back to school. And so we're trying to listen to all of those considerations and determine what the best path forward is for JetBlue, um, you know, particularly because we do have a large frontline operation and, and the, the role of everybody in the support center is, is to support those who are supporting our customers. And so, you know, we're working through a phased um, re-entry or scaling up is what we call it because we've been technically open, so it's not a reopening for JetBlue. We are looking at bringing volunteers back first, so only those who would like to come. We'll be doing temperature checks. We'll be increasing the seating area in the office. We'll be limiting the number of folks in a conference room, you know, all the touchless points, the extra cleaning, all of that. We've got our notification and, and uh, 
uh, contact tracing in place. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of other folks who aren't going to want to be volunteers. And so what does the, the new world look like for them? You know, we have a lot of crew members asking um, if they can work from home permanently. And, you know, I think one thing that this pandemic has showed us is you can work remotely and you can be pretty effective at it. But, you know, I think the concern is there are still some shortcomings, particularly in organizations that are highly collaborative, particularly in organizations where um, it's an upfront and kind of in-person culture. And so that's what we're struggling with is what does the new normal look like for JetBlue? Um, and what are the, the advantages of, of having a much higher uh, number of folks work from home? Um, obviously, there's cost savings around a real estate footprint, but then you know, there are certain disadvantages. And then I just think putting my HR hat on, are there long-term um, considerations that we should be keeping in mind regarding promotions? And, you know, we talk at JetBlue about influencing across the organization and, and, um, and knowing the people that you work with and knowing the leaders. And if you're working from home, and you don't have that touch point, is that gonna impact your career yeah. um, or the opportunities that you may have? And so, you know, in order to make sure that doesn't happen, we're gonna to have to come up with a different framework, but there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And we're trying to be careful stepping into this so that we don't come out with a program that might not work longer term and might have a downside that nobody really appreciates at this moment in time. Joanna, let's end on one of the hallmarks of JetBlue, and that is your culture. As the former chief people officer and now the president and COO, what are you doing to maintain this, this remarkably well-commented-on culture at JetBlue when you're in the midst of a pandemic, but you also don't have the interaction you know, in person that is crucial to building and maintaining culture? Any insights you'd share? Sure. I mean, this has been something that we've focused a lot on during the pandemic. We have... Um, I'd say over-communicated, um, and you probably can't over-communicate, but we've communicated so much during this event, um, and that has been critical. You can't communicate enough, and transparency would be the other thing. You know, our crew members are all very focused on what happens in October, and we don't have the answers yet, and we've had to tell them we don't have the answers that we wish we did, but we, you know, it's very uncertain. Even, you know, our July travel looks uncertain, our, you know, August travel looks uncertain, and you know, trying to create an environment where it's okay to live in the gray for a little while has been really challenging. One thing that's worked incredibly well uh, for even a frontline um, organization um, with a workforce that you know doesn't come to the office is is we've had town hall meetings where we've had upward of 2,000 crew members on them. We do them every single week. Uh, we started initially uh, doing town hall meetings four times a week, um, and we've now uh, we now continue doing it every week. We thought we would do kind of one and done, and the amount of interest has been overwhelming. Um, and I think it's because when you're at home or you're not coming to work or you're on a leave, we have a lot of crew members on a leave. You want that connection with mm -hmm. the company and your leaders in terms of what's going on. And um, and I would just say communicate, communicate, communicate. You cannot communicate enough, and when you think you've communicated enough communicate again, um, because you'll capture a person who even missed a pocket session, or there'll be a new event that's happened that is uh, is relevant. We talk about the coronavirus world in terms of, you know, just almost dog years. Each day, so much happens. And so um, making sure that you're just staying ahead of this with your crew members through a variety of communications, email, videos, town hall meetings via Zoom and, and uh, Microsoft is just incredibly critical during these times. Joanna, I'm sure you and your team are exhausted. Thank you for taking the time out of 
your obviously busy schedule that the president and CEO of a major U.S. airline would take time and, and, and the abundance and the generosity to come and share with our listeners and viewers ideas and practical tips they can implement is a, a tribute to your brand and to your own character. Thank you for your leadership and abundance today. Wish your family well and safe, and I look forward to my next JetBlue experience. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Bye-bye. And now for our next interview, we've invited Franklin Covey's chief people officer and two-time Wall Street Journal best-selling author, Todd Davis. Todd, welcome back to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Hey, Todd, like all of our guests in this multi-part interview, you have uh, plenty of things to be doing because as our executive vice president and chief people officer, you got a few things going on when it comes across the, you know, the 50-plus offices Franklin Covey has around the world Todd, we spoke earlier today with Joanna from JetBlue, and she, at my request, was quite tactical around the processes, strategies, systems that JetBlue is undertaking to re-enter their workforce back into their buildings. Of course, they never stopped. As an airline, they've been on the front lines from day one. Today, I'd like to have your conversation with our listeners and viewers focus a little more on sort of some of the leadership strategies, the culture that Franklin Covey is focused on to maintain our momentum as it relates to not just our employees, but also to our work with our clients as well. Todd, would you reorient some of our listeners to kind of the years you've been with the company and some of the few roles that you've had that have led up to you now being our own chief people officer? You bet. Thank you, Scott. So I've been with Franklin Covey going on 25 years now. It's been a great and continues to be a great uh, ride, so to speak. Uh, I had previously worked in the medical industry for many years and then came on at what was then called the Covey Leadership Center, heading up their recruitment department. Then for several years, I moved into our innovations department where I helped and was privileged to help develop some of our uh, great uh, flagship offerings. And, and then for the past nearly 16 years, have served as an executive vice president and chief people officer at the company. As I mentioned, you're also a two-time best-selling author, so you've been on the road a lot the last four or five years, keynoting around the world, you're probably liking a bit of the break from having three jobs versus just two right now. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the uh, hold on travel has, has been a blessing for some of us. It's but, true. Uh, I've, had, I've had great great experiences here at Franklin County. Yeah, I'll bet there are some marriages that are suffering as a result of their spouses not being out on the road as well. I think a lot of us look forward to kind of getting back into our routine, hopefully sooner than later. Todd, let's talk about your engagement level with Franklin Covey's formal leaders, our general managers, vice presidents, directors, people who are people leaders inside the organization. As you look back at, say, the last two and a half months, 10, 11 weeks, what have been the biggest challenges that otherwise very competent people leaders have been facing, perhaps with their own mindsets and with those of those working for them? Great question. I, I, I think it's important for all us to remember that leaders, which we're all in, a, you know, you and I are in leadership roles and the leaders that I work with are also human beings. They also have their worries, their concerns about uh, their, their uh, financial situation, their children who are now home from school or their aging parents. Or, so I, I think first and foremost, it's important to remember, and I try and remember as I work with and coach these leaders and others, that they're also human beings in addition to being a leader. And, and as I like to say a lot, meet them where they are and, and recognize that first, recognize them first as a person. And then let's talk about what their roles and duties are and the important uh, things they need to be doing as a leader in our organization. Todd, you and I both know from um, myself having almost been here 
for 25 years myself. We have an extraordinary cadre of leaders at the Franklin Covey Company, which you would expect, right? This is our expertise, and we, uh, we invest heavily in developing the leadership capabilities of our own people. Look at that group. What are the best of the best doing? The, 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 the most effective leaders at Franklin Covey, and for that matter, any organization, what are they doing? What are they saying? How are they behaving differently that other leaders might choose to adopt some of those same things to rise to that level? Yeah, they, I love that because I can think of numerous examples. They are connecting on a human level. They are, they've always been great at holding you know, frequent one-on-ones, as, as we talk about, is important for any leader to do, to connect with their people. But they are realizing the importance of connection now more than ever before. You know, I mentioned I was in the medical industry many years ago before joining uh, Franklin Covey. And uh, there were several studies back then, and they continue to be now about bedside manner. And the equation with those physicians who have great bedside manner much lower malpractice situations and lawsuits going on. And so I'm not suggesting, well, we'll be kind to people and then they won't sue you, but I am suggesting that the data shows the more we can connect on the human level, the more we can let people know we care about you. We are interested in you, not just what you can do for us as an organization, if I'm your leader, but how are you doing? Then we, we enhance that relationship so there aren't as many stresses and, and maybe combative situations as there might be otherwise. So those best leaders you asked me about, they're recognizing the importance of maybe upping or increasing the frequency of their one-on-ones and maybe changing the format of those one-on-ones to spend a, a good chunk of time up front saying, how's everything going? How's your daughter doing? Or you mentioned last time that your mother was worried about this. What's going on there? And just having someone to listen to you is, is not, not a soft skill that's not important. It's critical at this time when people are feeling so anxious and so disconnected. So that's the first thing that our greatest leaders are doing. Todd, expand to the, the role that a leader plays in communication. When I was interviewing Joanna from JetBlue, she talked about her idea that leaders really can't over-communicate. And I'll tell you, I was wrestling with that because I, I get the premise of that, right? Is absent facts, people will make stuff up. But I also think there is a truth that Leaders can over-communicate because if you do communicate outside your expertise or you communicate and you're making stuff up or you're not uh, being uh, concise or factual, you can confuse people. What's been your experience with the wisdom that Joanna brought, obviously, on the fact that we need to communicate a lot? What's the right balance? Is there a right ratio of how often, how frequency? When should you say, you know what, maybe I should stop communicating for a bit? Well, it's a great point you bring up. And, and as an organization, we recognize that over-communication, if it starts to lead to inaccurate information, to, as you say, it can, be, can work against the very thing you're trying to do. We set up at the beginning of this pandemic, a weekly meeting with all of our leaders so that we could be providing them accurate information. We've now just moved that to bi-weekly, still making sure that they're getting facts and data and that things that we don't know yet they know to say that we're not sure, but anticipate in two weeks we'll have some more answers. As far as our, you know, reopening up some of our offices or as far as our consultants and our account executives starting to travel again. So I think um, as, as the senior level leader group, the importance of, of communicating actual factual information and also reminding leaders all the time, if you don't know, because you know there's so many opinions on the news and the news is going 24 hours, if you don't know, 
it's important to remind them, don't, don't be sharing that as well. So I, I would be careful uh, in the balance of communicating too much or not communicating enough. I think it would be better to err on the side of communicating a little bit too much just because of the um, separation and the anxiousness that all employees, including the leaders, are feeling right now. But, but to your very point, make sure what you're communicating is factual and not just your opinion or what you hope is going to happen or what you worry about is going to happen. So Todd, I've watched you and the executive team make some very careful investments in Franklin Covey's culture the last three months. We, you mentioned we have a town hall about once a month now or so, maybe a little less frequently. But we also have this weekly or now sort of you know, bi-monthly cadence with just leaders. Uh, what are the types of topics, skills, knowledge you transfer in these weekly, every two month, every two weeks or so, leader, leader of people meetings? Yes, well, it's, and I'm, and I'm not here to, to pitch our books, but following quite frankly what we outlined in, in the most recent best-selling book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team, these are really what we are following because they are critical practices, not for leading a team just when things are going business as usual, but for always leading a team. One of those practices, for instance, is leading your team through change. And we had one of our expert, in fact, our senior vice president of, of our consultant group, uh, use that content for one of these biweekly meetings, talking about the importance of recognizing and helping your team members recognize what, what uh, area they're in through what we call the change model. What, uh, you know, what are, are they currently in the zone of disruption? Are they already moved on to the zone of adoption to whatever this new normal turns out to be? And, and identifying where you're at as a leader and when they're at. That's, that's one of the many things that we've been communicating with our leaders is how important it is to recognize where you're at so that you can then lead your other team members through it. I've already mentioned the importance of holding regular one-on-ones. And, and what you say and what you communicate, what your intent is behind those one-on-ones. You know, I read an article the other day uh, that, that made reference to, you know, we keep hearing the comment, well, we're all in this together. We are all in this together. This article talked about hearing someone say, we're all in the same boat. And the author made such a great differentiation saying, we are not in the same boat. Right. We're all in the same storm but we're all in different boats. Some of us have nice cruise liners. Some of us have broken down, you know, rag ships. Others don't even have a boat. And I, I think it's so critical as leadership and, and as someone who's in a, in a position to help coach leaders to remind them that everybody's not the same. You know, this phrase, oh, I know how you feel. I cringe whenever I hear that. And I'm sure I've used that phrase before, but none of us, none of us knows exactly how the next person feels. Even someone who's in the same role or title that I have, we have a different set of circumstances and I can't overemphasize that enough. Everyone is in a different boat and we gotta be mindful of that if we're going to be effective as their leader and as their coach. Todd, one of the reasons why we had this multi-part interview today was to provide all of our millions of listeners and subscribers and viewers around the world some tips and ideas to draw upon the wisdom of our guests. Let's talk a bit about Franklin Covey's re-entry plan. Now, for those who may not be aware, our company is a public company. We're based here in Salt Lake City, Utah, but we have offices around the world. Some of them are company-owned and operated offices, and other of those are licensed and managed through, um, through partnerships. As it relates to the employees here at you know, the corporate headquarters in Salt Lake City, what could you share with our 
viewers and listeners around some of the thought processes, systems, protocols that you're leading for the company as you, we kind of reopen the campus at some point, and what will it be like to work at Franklin Covey in the coming months and year ahead? Great question. You know, it's been, I won't say it's been surprising, but it's been very interesting for us during the last couple of months of this, of this lockdown to see the, the productivity and the effectiveness of our various teams not drop at all and actually in many cases increase. So first and foremost, we're kind of rethinking who does need to be in an office, in a brick and mortar office. As you mentioned, we have consultants and we have account executives out around the world who have already been working from home offices and virtually for a long time. But we have this hub of, of 200 plus people in our corporate office here in Salt Lake that in most cases, if not all, have become actually more effective. And as I've been talking with them and checking in on them and their leaders and what's going on, the theme that I'm hearing from them as to why this productivity has increased is they have more balance in their lives. Now that sounds like an odd thing to talk about in a, a pretty stressful, chaotic time, but the fact that they are now working through their day in their home environment and they're determining more than they did before when they do what, their productivity has actually increased. So the, the level of trust, I guess I would say, that employers have with their employees is really being put to the test right now. You know, some industries and some, some employers think, well, unless I can see the person at their desk from eight to five, I don't know that they're working. Well, I, I think it's time to really evaluate what are we paying for? And what, what we're paying for are results. And do I care if you get that done between eight and five or between noon and midnight or sporadically in between? I had two employees and they're not in entry-level positions. I've had two employees so far come to me confidentially and say, hey, I, I don't know how to talk to my manager about this. I can take on more. I'd like some more tasks. I all of a sudden have some additional capacity that I didn't have before. And I'm sure some of that is their commute time, what their former commute time was. What a great thing. And, and the reason they didn't want to go to their boss is they didn't want her or him to be thinking, well, yeah, I've just been kind of slacking off, but now I'm ready to take on more. They've actually been surprised themselves that they actually have more capacity. So I think the whole way we're working, I was reading uh, Mark Zuckerberg's and, and, and Twitter's you know, accounts of where they may change their whole approach to business and have many, if not all of their employees or different sections work from home. I think it's something as employers, we should all be evaluating right now and asking first and foremost, the question, what are we paying for? We're paying for results. And if this person can get this job done, I mean, it opens up this whole new world of recruiting from anywhere. And instead of having people live in very expensive parts of the world to, you know, to, to work for your company, they can maybe work remotely. So those are things that as an organization we're thinking about right now, and we're working with our managers to, to, for them to have input on whether they think their teams would be better in the long run continuing to work from home. But for those who are returning to home, to, to get back to your question, we're going through th things that were mentioned this morning from Joanna, we're going through, okay, what does it mean? How do we need to reconfigure the offices so that we have appropriate social distancing? How do people come in the building? What kinds of, of you know, uh, wellness checks are we going to be doing from temperature measuring to has there been anyone sick in the family and how do we track through that? So we're answering all those. I, I could go over them, but you and I are getting dozens of emails on how those things work. And so we think we've got a, a very good uh, plan in place for when those who we decide should return do return to work. But again, the, the takeaway I'd like from 
viewers to think about in this question is, what are you paying for? What are the results you're paying for? And are we stuck in some old ways of thinking that that has to be done at this desk from eight to five? Todd, in, in addition to being our chief people officer, you are also an operational leader. You manage a large budget and processes and employees lead them as well. Uh, anything changed amongst your group in the people services team at Franklin Covey that might be replicable or maybe inspiring to, to listeners and viewers on things that you've challenged your own kind of paradigm around or you've changed your mindset on in terms of how your team works? Well, our CEO, Bob Whitman, has really led you and me and the rest of the executive team out on this. But, but I think a, a, a great and helpful uh, result from this pandemic, and, and I, I, I'm assuming most businesses are going through this, it's time to reevaluate the true effectiveness of every part of your business. Uh, the last thing any CEO or any top leader in an organization wants to do is lay somebody off. Or, or ask them to take a reduction in pay or ask them to be furloughed without pay for a while or things like that. And, and many are, are unfortunately in a position where they have to do that. And, and we may be in the future. We're fortunately not right now. But one thing that we have our every person in the company and certainly every leader thinking about is what discretionary spending are you, do you have within your stewardship that if you, if you didn't use that spending, if you didn't do that right now, um, would not damage the business or damage any of the, the great things that we do for our clients. And it really gets everybody thinking, especially when you say, put, put one of our employees' faces on that dollar before you spend it. And we've, for as long as I can remember, never had frivolous spending or things that you know people had to say, oh gosh, I'm embarrassed to know that I was doing this. But we do have new ways of thinking about the business with the intent of, of saving jobs, of keeping this tremendous group of talented people we have here at Franklin Covey. And so I think a, a big takeaway for me and that I would advise others and we're learning from every day is to really evaluate, am I stuck in an old way of doing things that's actually costing the company more money and are there better ways to accomplish this same thing that don't cost as much and we can therefore keep the great talent that we have on board. Todd, Dr. Stephen R. Covey was a mentor and a friend of yours, the co-founder of our firm, the author of many books, including the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which just hit its 30th anniversary, was re-released this week with new insights from one of his sons, a friend of ours, Sean Covey. And this book has sold 40 million copies. It's going to have a resurgence in the coming weeks because of the re-release. Uh, as we both know, Dr. Covey passed away just shy of eight years ago as a result of a head injury from a bicycle accident. Um, ha had that not happened, and had Dr. Covey still be here, been here and was coaching you, what do you think, channel Stephen Covey for us, what are <laughs> some of the leadership insights, uh, I mean that appropriately, <laughs> channel Dr. Covey, what are some of the I'm things he would- I'm not a medium, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the things that Dr. Covey would, would be reminding you of to remind all of our leaders of? Well, I'm going to return to a theme that I started out with, and, and I don't mean to harp on this, except for I do, because I, I think nothing is more important. Two of, of his many, you know, hundreds of famous thoughts and quotes come to mind right now. The first is, with people, fast is slow. He, he would say this often, with people, fast is slow. And what he meant about that was, 
in our effort to try and be efficient and to solve problems and decide how are we going to reopen and how are we going to take care of this and how are we going to do that? We, we want it. We want to move quickly. And, and yes, of course, we want to move quickly. But when you're dealing with people and you try and speed things up without taking time to gather their input, to hear them out, to understand their point of view, you're actually slowing the whole process down. So, so the first of the two would be, remember, with people, fast is slow. Slow down a little bit. And the second is, is within the same theme and, he, theme, and he said, the deepest need of the human heart is to be understood. And I'm just, I'm back to this topic of empathy. Someone asked me in an interview the other day, which of the seven habits is most important at this time? Well, that was a hard choice because they're all very relevant all the time, but specifically right now. But if forced to say you can only pick one, it would be habit five. Seek first to understand than to be understood. With all of the millions of opinions out there on, you know, the political uh, aspects of this, of right. this virus, wearing masks, not wearing masks, all, everything that's going on, and we all have and, and get more uh, steeped in our opinions, if we'll just pause for a minute and take time to truly understand the other person's point of view, as outlandish as it may seem to us, we will get much farther in, in developing and strengthening those relationships and therefore moving our organizations and our teams forward. So the deepest need of the human heart is to be understood. Todd, take a moment and kind of retrain us all on how we exercise our empathy muscle. We hear so much about, you know, you can teach empathy or can you teach empathy? What, what, what does empathy look, sound, and feel like when a leader, a parent, a son-in-law, a neighbor, a team member is actually demonstrating it with someone else in their life. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. It starts with your intent. If, mm. if my intent is to, quote unquote, have empathy so that I can then convince you over to my way of thinking, you may as well stop there because you're, you're not going to be successful at truly empathizing with another person. But if my intent is really to understand you so that I can have a, a more civilized, pleasant, meaningful conversation with you, then that's the place to start. So check your intent first. And if my intent is to truly understand you without the goal of changing your mind, of getting you to agree with me, that's the first step. Once I'm there, and again, if I can't get there, then, then don't waste your time. But if I can get there and have that sincere intent, then this, this habit is truly executed by listening to the other person, listening to, to as best as you can, what are they feeling right now? Are they feeling anxious? Are they feeling excited? Are they feeling stressed? Are they feeling panicked? And then to acknowledge that and say, Scott, you seem pretty stressed about this. Right there, that's an empathic statement. You're not you're not going on to then advise, you seem pretty stressed. Have you thought about calling this person? Have you thought about doing this? Resist that. Suspend, and Stephen Covey used that word a lot, and I love it. Suspend your feelings and your opinions long enough to truly understand the other person. Suspend doesn't mean throw out. Suspend doesn't mean give up on. Suspend means put your feelings and your emotions and your opinions aside so that I can truly say, Debbie, you seem really anxious about the change we're making. Am I understanding that correctly? You think about that person in your life or those people, hopefully, in your life that really 
have empathic listening skills and how, how you are just drawn to them whenever you really need to be understood. Who are you being that for? This is what I, I share with leaders every day. Are you being that for each of your team members? Because the sooner they can feel understood and they can get it out, then we can start productive, effective conversations to move forward. Stephanie Miller would have given me an F minus on this between about 7.50 and 10.15 last night, <laughs> which I imagine a lot of marriages are going through right now, right? I don't, I don't imagine mine is the only. Uh, Todd, one final question, because I, I, when, when we have a chief people officer on the phone, it's always or on, the, on the line through Zoom, it's always helpful to understand kind of policies. And what advice would you give the employee who needs a break? They need a vacation, but they're not going to board a plane to Rome or to Fort Myers, what, and, but they're scared about their job, and they're not wondering if their job's going to be safe and if they can actually take a vacation. I don't know anybody who's working less. I mean, I, my, my personal life ceased to, to exist 10 weeks ago. Any broad advice you would give to people on how to make sure that they're balancing, take some time off, take a vacation, versus being paranoid that you're going to lose your job if you're able to do that. Yes, well, I've, we're, we're pretty big on planning here at Franklin Covey. As you know, one of our, one of our founding uh, solutions was around TimeQuest and time management and the Franklin Planner. And, and that is not lost. That is still very much a part of our culture and a part of each of our, our solutions. And as I've talked with people, both in our company, outside of our company, one of the things that they're really struggling with is keeping a schedule because their schedule is now kind of whatever they want it to be within yeah. reason. Right. And, and that part sounds good, but back to when they used to report into an office, they would, in, in most cases, and in our company, they would plan out their week on a Sunday night, map out what they needed to do. I would encourage people to continue to do that because as you do that and you look at your schedule, even though your commute is on now from your bedroom to your office, your home office, if you're lucky, <laughs> if you have a home office. Um, but if you plan out that schedule in that week, you can visually look at it and say, wow, I've kind of forgotten that, yeah, maybe eating lunch while I'm doing these meetings isn't a great thing. Am I breaking out for lunch? And should I go take an hour in the afternoon and go walk with my partner or my spouse or my dog or all three of, you know? And, and so I think visually looking at your week and okay, yeah, I intended to do this, but now it's been two weeks and I still haven't blocked out time to do X or Y. So I think that has been for myself and those that I've been working with the most helpful to visually map out, don't stop your planning. Don't stop being structured that way. And in that structure, make sure to the very things that you mentioned, make sure I'm blocking out time for that or I'm going to burn out and my team's going to burn out. So, Todd, I'll be on vacation for the next 10 days. Thank you for the permission. I appreciate that. We are all in the same storm. We are not all in the same boat. Todd Davis, Franklin Covey's Chief People Officer, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Scott. Hello, and welcome back to our third conversation in this special coronavirus how are we re-emerging back into the workplace series? My name is Scott Miller, and today we are joined by Anita Grantham, who is the chief people officer for the company Pluralsight, a global company based here in Utah. Pluralsight, as many of you know, is one of the world's leading technology platforms for developing technical skills online. Anita Grantham, welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership. 
Thank you, Scott Miller. So great to see you. It's kind of humbling, isn't it? Because all of the C-level staff around the world are now working from their home just like you. Anita, you are one of the executive officers inside Pluralsight. And if anybody is responsible for developing the skills of their employees, namely the technical skills, and they are either customers or yours, or perhaps will be so after our conversation today. Anita, you serve as the chief people officer. What I'd love to have you do, would you just kind of reorient our listeners and viewers to the mission of Pluralsight and kind of how long you've been there and what does it mean to be the chief people officer there? Sure. The mission of Pluralsight is to democratize professional technology skills and engineering management, which is really interesting right now because we talk about how engineers can be productive and how to measure the productivity of engineers and then give them the skills to upskill and reskill as technology is always changing. I spent four years here in this tour of duty at Pluralsight, and I really view my role is to galvanize the hearts, minds, and spirits of our people. And through this unique time of COVID, we've seen that even more. And my, my job is to shepherd them on this journey while they're here at Pluralsight and prepare them for their next chapter. Anita, I'm one of the many thousands of people that follows you on social media, and you've been on a bit of a whirlwind tour with Pluralsight up until recently. Uh, as the chief people officer, you write, you speak, you promote, you launch, you, you welcome. I think you have uh, over 10 offices around the world. What's it been like for you, like many of us that have had your own kind of workflow abruptly interrupted? It's been an amazing time. It's the best leadership course I've ever been in. Mm. We have people in over 12 countries. We have three offices. And what we learned is that we were remote friendly before COVID and we're remote friendlier post COVID or we still believe we're in the urgent phase of COVID. So we become more remote friendly and we realize that we have a lot of strength and a lot of ability to connect while still being remote. And we found actually more of our customers are easier to connect with. They're more available than they were when everybody was traveling. We've had better conversations. There isn't a time when I haven't been on a phone with a customer where a small child hasn't come in on the screen. And it's been a uh, a more holistic way to get to know your people, whether that's a team member at Pluralsight or a customer that we have. And that's been the joy in it for us, honestly. Anita, I've followed you enough to know you have very strong opinions about leadership because of your musings and writings on, on social. I want to come to those in just a few minutes. Let's talk practical for a few moments. Yeah. You have a large campus here in Utah. You have um, nearly 2,000 employees worldwide. Let's talk about what are some of the challenges you're facing as a chief people officer when it comes to literally considering moving people back into office structures, compounds? What are some of the issues you're facing? Any insights you would share with our listeners and viewers on that? The most, the most challenging thing, Scott, is the uncertainty. Yeah. We've made a priority and we, we've done weekly town halls. So our whole executive team is on a town hall every week since we started this. And the biggest message we've wanted to give certainty around is our primary responsibility is to you and your family and your safety. That's number one, job one to be done. Outside of that, what we did is a deep dive around all the places we have team members 
And it's very interesting because every state has its own protocol. Every country has its own protocol. So just this last Thursday on town hall, we went through and we said, we will return to the office when offices are at low risk or countries and regions are at low risk. And so depending if you're in Sydney or Dublin, the vernacular around low risk is different. So what we did is we took the vernacular of that region, put it into our town hall so that everybody in Dublin knew exactly what we were talking about. Everybody in Sydney knew what we were talking about. Everybody in North America, based on the states that we have most team members knew what we were talking about. But we said collectively, we believe that we wanna re-enter at low risk and we want to be rural, rural remote friendly so we're looking at ways to we to help the teams and individuals produce so we know that a lot of individuals may not feel safe but it may not work for the team if they're 100 percent remote so we're working through the pieces and we're going to spend the next 45 days going really deep with individuals and with leaders around what productivity and what success looks like based on what the company needs and what the individual needs Anita, Pluralsight has seen enormous expansion and growth over the last several years. You're one of the big success stories that's coming out of uh, Utah in terms of our high-tech corridor. Many people may have heard of this area called Silicon Slopes. It's about kind of halfway between Salt Lake City and Provo, Utah. There is this massive explosion of innovation, companies that are transforming the way we work together, and you're one of those leaders in this whole Silicon Slope areas. I mention that because you can't help but drive that uh, uh, corridor and see this, you know, gleaming new building that Pluralsight has uh, uh, been building the last couple of years. That's really a state-of-the-art campus and facility. I don't think you've completed it yet to the degree you can speak to a situation that a lot of companies are in, right? They were expanding their real estate footprint. They were perhaps relocating into bigger campuses What's been the struggle and any of the insights you've learned as you begin to look at finishing this building? And what can you share with the broader audience that perhaps you've already shared with your employees, of course? Sure. Thanks for asking. The biggest piece is that we're looking at what does safety look like for Pluralsight in the context of the global footprint. So we're looking at plexiglass. We're looking at all of our desk spaces. We're already six feet apart. So we're gonna make sure that we continue that practice. We probably won't be doing benching. You know, a lot of engineering teams have benching for the way they work. That doesn't work to keep six feet apart. So we're looking at how do we spread those out? We also recognize that there's an opportunity to be COVID friendly for the future. We want our campus to be recognized as a COVID friendly and a, a place you can be safe no matter where you're from or where you are if you're a visitor or a team member into our space. So it looks like enhanced cleaning and we've been partnering with our cleaning vendors to say, what can you provide and how often does it look like? Where will hand sanitizer be and wipes be? What will be the maximum limit on conference room spaces? Do people enter and exit from conference rooms in a different step format? And we're, we're in a place in the construction that we can make some of those changes. And I don't know about you, Scott, if you and your leadership team have been on 10 hours of Zoom calls and we know we're suffering from Zoom fatigue too, there's some meetings that are better in person and some meetings that are better together. So as we're looking at this and discussing it with our board, we're saying, what are the activities that we want to engage in as a team together and still provide a safe space for us to engage six feet apart if we are face-to-face -face in a facility? 
So those are all of the things that we're looking at. We haven't made firm decisions. Some of the things we have, like the six feet of benching, and others, we're still we still consider ourselves urgent in our in our phased plan. We we think it goes from urgent to stable to recovery. So we still see ourselves in urgent. And as testing becomes available, as more data comes out, we'll continue to make decisions. Right now, we said that we don't anticipate anybody would come back until August, and at least two to three weeks before an anticipated return to any site. We will clearly outline specifically what it looks like in the office so people can choose whether it works for them to go back or not. And then we'll have those discussions from there. And it's, it's a very personal process for people. Anita, I've, again, I said I've followed you enough to know you have very passionate views on culture, building culture, how leaders impact culture. What has, perhaps surprisingly good or surprisingly critical, the COVID pandemic done to the culture at Pluralsight? That's a great question. I would say that we have a value, it's called create with possibility. And a lot of our team members have struggled with that, you know, especially our sales team. How can I create with possibility? How can I see my customers if I can't travel and fly to them? And one of the things I've been pushing our sales leaders on is, you know, you would take you know, trip for 72 hours and you cover three customers. If you take that 72 hours, you could make a hundred phone calls, let's just say, to the customer. Now, what does it look like to be a best in class enterprise sales leader that can't travel? And let's focus on that. You know, if I look at people that have survived on a deserted island, they were the people that adapted and accepted this was the reality. And I think culturally we've struggled because people haven't wanted to accept this is the reality. Now, I don't mean agree. This is where it's different. I may not agree that this is the new reality. I may not like it, but I have to accept that I am on a Zoom call here with you, and that's the best way we can do this. And I'm going to make it the best possible Zoom experience for you based on what I know today. And so I'm really pushing our leaders to accept, to adapt, and move quickly through that process to maintain Pluralsight. Because look, we can take care of our people. And if we don't care of Pluralsight, there's no way to take care of our people. And so part of the challenge culturally is to understand, well, you say we've been physically responsible. You say all these things, why are we going through cost savings mechanisms? And our, our team members are very outspoken and I love it. And since we've done this, we've, we've gone in a cultural direction around accepting anonymous questions, which I've never been a fan of. And I don't know that I will ever be a fan of because I believe culturally, if you really want to seek context with intention, you have to show up with a name and a face. And if I can show up anonymously, it gives me a cover that I don't know that aligns with our culture. And because we want people to feel safe right now, we've opened it up to get those questions. And what I've experienced around it is, is sometimes the, the inability to see what's happening around the world. Why can't I get gym reimbursements? Well, we're looking to save jobs and we're not looking to expand our cost basis. And that's why we're not going to reimburse you for your home gym. We are going to stay with our current policy and you can still get reimbursed for other things, but we're not going to add to home gym reimbursements. And that's been, you know, some of those conversations have been bones of contention, not only for leaders and team members, but team member to team member. We actually had two anonymous responses where somebody said, can I get my gym equipment? And somebody responded and said, I'd rather have a job. Why are you asking this question? And so our head of diversity and inclusion posted before this last town hall, it was a beautiful message. And it said, if you're angry, be angry. If you disagree, disagree. And be in alignment with our values. It's not what you say, but how you say it. 
all opinions matter. Let's voice those and do it respectfully. So those are, are some of the things we've experienced. That was super powerful. It never crossed my mind to um, try to expense my home gym, and I still won't. But I understand, <laughs> you know, when you have a culture of innovation, you encourage yes. people to take risks and ask questions, and the answer may be no, right? So... I want them to ask. I'd rather have the question. And that's where Aaron and I have aligned is we'd rather have the question than not have the question. Yeah. And we'd rather answer it. Like it's, 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 it's an awesome opportunity. And like I said, it's the best leadership course I've ever experienced. Anita, I had the privilege of a year ago of interviewing you for what was then Franklin Covey's radio program called Great Life, Great Career on iHeartRadio. And I was struck at your own level of business acumen. You know, when, when sometimes there's this common viewpoint, prejudice, blind spot, around people in HR, that they could be more uh, sophisticated on understanding the economics and operation of the business. I think we're seeing a sea change of uh, human resource professionals become much more business literate. What are, some of the, um, what are some of the positives that have come from your uh, remarkably strong business acumen and how deeply integrated you are into the economics of your business when it comes to looking at furloughing and downsizing and how you can make other decisions to have, have maybe keep uh, plural siding good economic condition. Not every company can afford that luxury, but what are some of the conversations like around this versus that, this or that? It's a great question. So we got started on this journey and we recognized very quickly that we wanted to survive the journey as a leadership team. And so we pushed Aaron to say, what, are, what is the intention? What do you want to achieve through the time of COVID? And he said, I want to maintain optionality and I want to be able to rebound very, very quickly. And this was after a whole series of emails and conversations we'd had with our board and I'd had with our CFO and our CFO had bubbled up some ideas that looked very you know, similar. Like if we get to this point, we will do this. If we get to this point, we will do this. And I went to our CFO and I said, hey, give me the number. Just give me, tell me, tell me what you want. Like, how much do you want to save? How much do you want to shrink for so that we can maintain optionality and rebound quickly? And he said, I need, I need X. And I said, great. And so I went back with my team and I just have to say that nothing that I'm sharing with you today isn't without the team and the people team at Pluralsight has delivered some of their best work I've ever seen at this time. And I'm super grateful. And so the team went hard at work and they went through every line item. And if you get really clear, most all, every expense is people related. It's either the headcount itself or it's the expenses around the headcount. And it's the majority in a SaaS business of what accounts for your expense line. So we had a lot of lines to go through. And we wanted to be very surgical. You know, it would have been easy to say, hey, we're going to furlough X percent. We're going to riff or lay off or reduce and force X percent and we're done. And we said, no, that's not in alignment with our culture because that actually doesn't maintain optionality and it doesn't enable us to rebound. So those two guiding principles were super critical in us taking a surgical approach and going to this patient you call plural site and saying, what are the things I can look at? So we recognized that it was millions of dollars that we were spending in our 401k match. And I actually went and researched a bunch of other SaaS companies. And I said, what are people doing with benefits right now? Next to humans, benefits are the other big bucket to pull from. And most SaaS companies weren't touching benefits because of the things that are happening with COVID. And that makes sense. And so we thought, well, what we could do is instead of matching with cash, our 401k, we can match with equity. So we saved that cash, but still gave a benefit to the team members and an equal exchange for equity. 
that they could they can maximize. So that way we're saving the cash, keeping the benefit, protecting the company, not riffing or laying off people. We actually said we're going to have a hiring frost. So we're not going to stop hiring because that's not maintaining optionality and our ability to rebound. What we are going to do is establish a hiring committee, which is most of our business partners, our head of FP&A and my head of strategy and operations. And we said, submit your request for hiring and we will match it against our revised strategy. We have five things that we're focused on right now. Any hires that lend us to those things will be allocated into the system. If they're not, we're going to hold on them for now. And we got everybody really clear around that. So we we're able to save a lot around hiring. We we're able to innovate around our benefits and we're still able to maintain optionality. And that would be, you know, my request. If you look at business acumen is gain the trust of your CFO, ask for the number, ask for the guiding principles from the CEO. And then what we did is a series of meetings with our board, with our executive team to say, would you support this? Would you not? Does this work for you? Does it not? And we iterated from there. And now we have a very comprehensive plan. We know exactly what steps to take and we're able to engage in all that. You know, we spent over a million dollars on food and we said a year. And we said, when you come back to campus, we're not paying for any food. And, you know, we love you, but uh, no more snacks for now. And everybody kind of laughed at it in the Slack channel. They were like, what can we do to get snacks back? And we just said, hey, we're, we're preserving jobs. We are fighting every day to preserve the well-being for you and your family by keeping your job and keeping your benefits. Anita, beautifully said, you are very well connected in the global human resource talent development chief people officer space. As you know, our first interview was with Joanna, who serves as the president and COO of JetBlue. And she was talking about how they had hired a full-time sort of infectious disease specialist to educate the executive team on, you know, temperature checks and on the, the whole virus um, nature of spread in the offices. I read an article recently that said that this idea of a chief health officer is gonna become quite you know, common in, of course, larger organizations. Do you think we'll see perhaps even smaller companies look at contracting in experts on advising us on uh, increasing our own acumen around not necessarily medicine, but on the health and well-being of our employees because of this pandemic? I do. It's actually, it was one of the things that we just eliminated from our, well, not eliminated, we've pushed out on our roadmap. So we had it in the plan for early 2021. It's still going to get there in 2021, you know, God willing that all of this moves through, Um, you know, and we haven't announced this. So no one, no one really knows, but we, you know, we've been looking very seriously and doing a lot of research about having an onsite clinic and having a medical, medical director of that clinic. And, you know, it's not only for the physical health, Scott, but a lot of the challenges are mental health related at this time. So we've looked to, to say, how do we, uh, we, we weren't going to add to benefits right now, but how do we increase accessibility and awareness of the current benefits that are there? Yeah. How do we do more leadership coaching? How do we do more leadership sessions? Aaron and I have been doing a lot of them just on Zoom saying, ask us your questions, tell us what you're struggling with. And so I do think from physical health to mental health, Companies of all sizes will need this resource. Now, I understand small companies may not be able to afford it, and I think that will be something they will request from their brokers, from their health insurance companies. They will say, for me to sign up on you, I want this type of support, and they should. And for you know what we're paying in premiums and all of those things, we should get that support, especially if we care about future health and maintaining good health. We would want to make sure that we're proactive about these pieces, especially in an environment like COVID that I think will exist forever. 
I need to pivot for a moment. Let's talk about leadership. Uh, fast forward to 2021, uh, hopefully not 2022, but in the next you know, 18 to 24 months, what do you think are going to be the leadership competencies that, that every employer, every organization will need to see in their people leaders that maybe aren't just natural principles that you know, you're gonna need to see more of this than we did perhaps in 2019. Anything stick out to you to say, I'm gonna look for this and this and this in new people leaders and my current people leaders need to develop these skills even better? Yes, there's quite a few I see. I'll start with five, decisiveness. The ability to make decisions, know who owns the decision, make it quickly and act. And if you, if you mess it up, you just change. But decisiveness is critical. Assertiveness with the team, being really clear on what they can count on, what they can't, what their role is, what it's not, and how it's incentivized. I think it's in that bucket of, of that piece is it's a new relationship with a performance agreement. That's what we call it, a plural site. It's a co-created agreement on the results and outcomes that you're driving, coupled with how you're going to grow as an individual or as a leader, and how you're going to lead your team if you're a people leader. And what I've noticed through this evolution is you've got to be super clear, because we we want to know that when people can do work, which we know is cut back significantly, like productivity is impacted right now as we did this massive shift, you've got kids out of school. If you come to sit down to do work for two hours, I want to know that you know what matters most to the company. So I think it is increased conversation around performance. And a lot of our leaders are saying, you seem to be so, you know, so firm around performance right now. And I said, we've always been firm around performance. We've always wanted to generate clarity around performance. And now you must do it. You have no option. Because if you're really going to look to optimize the team, you have to be clear on what it is they're out there to achieve. So those, those are the things that I think we've really got to be clear on. And then I also... I've also noticed that teams seem to be performing better the busier they are. And it takes a very mature leader to do this in a way that it doesn't create stress or fear or overwhelm. And I've noticed with my team, because we've had so much great work to deliver, it's actually helped the engagement process. And I've pushed. I've, I've found where I pushed too far. I've found where I needed to back off. But if I keep a steady state of really high quality work that challenges them, that allows them to grow, they really engage and they really perform. So the last area that I think leaders of the future are going to need exceptional communication skills, written and verbal, so that people understand how to decide how they contribute to the decision and what the, the, the criteria are for making that decision. Anita, our time's almost ended. That was fantastic and very uh, applicable, even for me to think about in my own role as a people leader here at Franklin Covey. Let's talk about balance for a moment. I don't know what your life is like. I get some sense, because we're you know, friends on Facebook and such, and you, your husband and you have two beautiful daughters that have um, my personality. Right? These are like high-energy young ladies. Uh, how are you dealing with balance in your own life? Because if you're at all like me, I'm working too much. I mean, it's required of me, but I don't have much blur now because everything is kind of the same. What advice would you give to other leaders from what you're learning about your own need for balance? So this is what I call it, Scott. I call it the wolf. It's work life and it's together. And the wolf jumps in at the most oh. inopportune time as it's blended together. And we actually have our oldest daughter living with us now too, a recent Arizona State graduate. She moved up here in April as her oh. commencement was canceled. 
And so we've got a full house, which is awesome. And what we're doing is we're making it really light. You know, all of this can feel really heavy and it can feel overwhelming. And what we push each other to do, and it's ebbs and flows. Some days I feel really heavy, some days I feel really light. And luckily we're not all heavy on the same day. And the beauty, we also have a new puppy, is, is just finding laughter and finding harmony. I don't, I've never believed in balance. I've believed in work-life harmony. And there's some days where life needs to take yeah. a greater yeah. stand. There's some days where work needs to take a greater stand. And just to not fight it. You know, there was one day where people were like, how are you? I'm like, well, I'm grumpy today. Like, that's it. And I wasn't going to fight it. I wasn't going to fake it. I was just like, ah, I'm just having a day and I'll get through it with you and I'll be fine. And tomorrow I'll be happy again. But just to be at peace, to be forgiving of those emotions as they come up. And and literally, like, I, I'm working on, on either picking or purchasing fresh flowers so I can smell them, enjoy the beauty, getting outside. Like, if I have 10 minutes between calls, I'll just stand and look up at the sun and close my eyes and just take yeah. in the sun and the goodness and listen to the birds. Or I'll work outside on the patio and take calls when it's nice. Most of my Zoom calls are on our patio. And I'll just I'll leverage the goodness that we have from this situation versus trying to, to, trying to feel constrained by it. So Anita, your energy is contagious. I'm gonna ambush you now. Okay. What's it like being a parent working from home? You have three daughters there. You know, my wife and I have three sons. Ours is a total cluster, you know what, right? This online learning thing and the teachers are trying. Any insights or empathy you might share with all the listeners on what's it like to be an executive stay-at-home educator, spouse, teacher, coach, mentor, cleaner, everything? Yeah, I, I've given up homeschooling. I never did it. I wasn't going to do it. We aren't homeschoolers and it's not my native genius. And I know that. And I, it's, just, it's a gap year. It's just a gap year. And I think this is the permission we just need to give ourselves as parents. I, I talk with parents. I'm doing so many one-on-ones right now with, with parents at Plural Site, single parents at Plural Site that are doing so much and they feel so overtaken with emotion and overwhelm and stress. And my coaching to them is what can you give up? And it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to look great. My house isn't clean and organized all the time. What we were here to do and what this quarantine was for was to keep family safe. That's your job. Like keep them safe and like give up the rest. And don't hold yourself to the standard of all of a sudden I have to be this homeschooler or whatever it is that you're feeling constrained about. And so we really worked at a family as a family to say, does this really matter for us right now? Um, is it really important? Is it critical? Is there a different way we can simplify it? What can we do to simplify? What can we do to find the joy and the fun? And if we're feeling like it's grindy and uncomfortable, like just toss it out. And so I think that would be, that's what we do is, is, you know, it's a gap year. And look, I don't think their future potential is going to be based off of this year. So I'm, I'm okay with it. You might've just saved my marriage. My <laughs> wife's going to come hug you metaphorically. <laughs> Stephanie Miller, meet Anita Grantham. <laughs> Anita, you were super abundant and generous today with your time. You had a lot of things you could have done. You chose to share your time with us and help the millions of people that are listening and watching recognize that they're right there with you, right? And that we're all needing to make choices, right? What can we give up? Our job is to protect, make our, 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 our team members and our family members feel safe. Thank you for your smile. And I love this idea of pick or purchase fresh flowers. Look at the sun a bit. Take in the small joys in life. Best of success to you and the Plural Site team as you reemerge and as you put your non-bench protocols in for the engineers. Thank you for joining us today on Leadership. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Great to be with you.
Welcome to the fourth conversation in our four-part series on this special edition of On Leadership, where we're discussing all things COVID-related as it relates to bringing employees back into organizations physically, and what are the leadership talents that we all need to see out of our people leaders going forward. I'm delighted joining us now is Lisa Stevens, who serves as the chief people officer for the global advisory firm Aon. Aon is a global company, offices in 120 countries, 50,000 employees. They specialize in professional services around retirement, income, insurance, human resource advisory. Joining us from Pasadena, California, Lisa, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, it's an absolute pleasure to get to spend time with you today on, on this uh, a very difficult topic. Hey, I'm delighted you're here. Looking forward to this kind of capstone conversation. Uh, candidly, Lisa, as you and I were getting to know each other off the air, prior to this interview, I uncovered a couple of um, confluences in your life that have happened that I think has built a special awareness and um, empathy in you. Would you just take a few moments and kind of reconstruct the conversation we had around some of the things that you have faced in your immediate an extended family that has, I think, probably made you a better leader at Aon and probably a better parent and family member in the midst of this pandemic? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, we went into lockdown in California back in the middle of March, and I am the proud mom of three kids. I have a 21-year-old son, a 19-year-old daughter, and a 15-year-old daughter. And my uh, two oldest uh, ended up coming home from college, uh, so they both uh, came here. Uh, and in the very first week, we dealt with uh, Wi-Fi issues and trying to figure out like who was going to be where and what we were going to be doing. Uh, I also, uh, my husband, who is uh, an extremely typically healthy guy, was having heart surgery. And uh, because of COVID, that ended up getting delayed. So we've been dealing with that and trying to figure out when's the safest time to actually have that, that surgery. We, we're super hopeful and know he's going to end up being fine, but it's going to be a bit of a recovery. And then uh, after we were in quarantine for, I want to say, about a week and a half, uh, my mom, who's up in Northern California, really needed to have more care. She's got some, uh, some special needs. Um, she's 80 years old. Uh, and so uh, I drove up there seven hours, picked her up and brought her back to on here and that was 10 weeks ago so we've got a full house and it's been really interesting and i would just say uh, when i talk to colleagues i know everyone has a different story like some people are dealing with aging parents their school teachers for the very first time uh they might be dealing with isolation i think that's that's a really difficult one and uh and i and i've been somewhat fortunate to be able to be experiencing a lot of the different challenges that that are going on but uh, it's also given me a lot of really great perspective as I as I think about what's happening around the world. I never would have gotten the time with my mom, and uh, I turned fifty on March eighteenth. And I had I had said to everyone, the only thing I want is for my entire family to be together. Uh, little did I know that it would be for uh, for this long. But it's been it's there's been a, a lot of things that have come out of this that have been difficult but extremely positive from a personal perspective. And then the last thing I think that was probably that um, had the largest impact was I had left New York on the 14th and I have a brother who is a doctor in New York who uh, came down with COVID. He's fine now. He, uh, he actually just tested for the antibodies and is doing well, but 
he was very sick and it was really scary to watch the, the impact of COVID uh, and how long it takes to, um, to recover from it. So uh, seeing it, seen it up, up close and personal for sure, Scott. Well, you also mentioned earlier too that your brother's partner, I think you said, also caught COVID with very different results. Just from your own personal experience, kind of contrast your brother's um, uh, issue with COVID versus his partner's. Yeah, so my brother had a 103 plus fever for about 11 days and his partner had a little bit of a headache and felt a little sick for a couple days. They both went and got the antibody test uh, about a week and a half ago and have the same levels of antibodies. So clearly they both had it and just completely contrasted in terms of, of, of the impact. It's very, it's fascinating, but definitely a, a live case right in front of us. Lisa, how has the confluence of all those events, being a parent of three children, some home from college, your husband's health, your mother's health, your brother and his partner's health, how does that impact the way you lead as the chief people officer of a global company thriving, hopefully, in a pandemic? I think that this is where you really have to focus on your your own emotional intelligence, or I like to think of it, uh, one of my favorite authors is a gentleman named Shirzad Shamin, who wrote a book called Positive Intelligence. And uh, it's really having insight, being authentic, being curious, uh, asking questions. So when we do meetings, we try to make sure we check in with people really quickly to see how they're doing, uh, give them an opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the different challenges that are going on. Like, I never thought that I was going to have to do, you know, fifth grade math again, or uh, trying to figure out you know, how to cook for the first time. But all those little things up front, I think really matter in listening to people and understanding that everybody's journey is a little bit different. The other thing that I would say that, uh, that I've had the opportunity to do is to watch colleagues when we talk to each other, how you can shift people's mindsets again in your perspective. So you can look at something and, and some things are again really hard and it's not gonna change it, but the way that you come about it and what your attitude is can really make a difference. And when you're in something day in and day out, that can be difficult. And so uh, it requires a lot of empathy, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, listening skills, uh, and just um, understanding again that we can't solve and we're so, we all, I think as leaders, we wanna solve everything. And we're at a place where it's such an unprecedented, uncertain time we don't get to solve. So uh, so we have to use a lot of other skills that maybe we haven't had to use as much before. Uh, the one other thing I had to say is I, for, with my personal situation, it's made me extremely grateful to be at an organization where we care so much about the 50,000 colleagues we have and how we care for them. And, I, and I'm one of those colleagues and lucky enough to get to lead people. Uh, but it's, been a, it's definitely been a journey. You use the word colleagues, I'm guessing very deliberately. I'm suspecting that's part of your culture. These 50,000 colleagues, I'm also guessing that they weren't working from home 90 days ago. What happened at Aon globally to prepare people to transition to a virtual environment? What were some successes and perhaps some challenges before we get into what the future looks like? Talk a bit about what the disruption was like at Aon. So it was actually, we had, um, our team has been pretty phenomenal in terms of how quickly we switched and transitioned from having the majority of our colleagues that were working in an office to working from home. So uh, 
incredible virtual capability that started right away. So I would say within the first few days, we started to get really good at doing this, uh, at communicating this way, at doing group group meetings. Uh, so we, we were prepared that way. And then and then I think the other thing that um, that we were able to do was really quickly too to understand that when you do this, you could end up doing it 12, 14 hours a day. You're, you know, you're living where you work or working where you live, depending upon how you look at it. And uh, so we started making sure people were finding protected time. Our CEO, the very like within the first couple of days, got on his iPhone and started sending out iPhone messages to the uh, to colleagues to make sure to give them updates about things that were happening. So we moved pretty quickly. We also recognized, again, that there were lots of challenges that people hadn't fa been faced with before. So we put in place you know, more sick time, more opportunities to help again with, with childcare and getting resources out to people as quickly as we could. Uh, we launched an app uh, called Well One, which uh, we actually provide to our clients uh, in different parts of Europe. And we launched it in, at Aon for all 50,000 colleagues, which is a, it's a physical, mental, uh, emotional, spiritual uh, uh, app application that you can use to uh, to set goals. You can create communities with it. Uh, we've done mental wellness uh, seminars. We had a mental wellness seminar a couple weeks ago. We had 3,000 colleagues that signed up for it. So we've been trying to respond as quickly as possible and really haven't missed a beat in terms of interacting with clients. Our, our clients are, you know, we're, we, we've been able to, to connect with them the other thing that I would just say is that we've seen teamwork has been really critical in terms of really rallying around what our clients needs right now because they keep changing and evolving. And so we have to evolve with them and make sure that uh, that we're there for them. So it's been it's again, it's been difficult, but it's also in some ways, you know, out of, again, this very hard situation. There's been some pretty incredible things that have happened. We like to think of this as the, you know, as the new, can this be the new better for us? How do we make sure that this is, that, that we go into this with an attitude of, of, of good things coming out of it? I like that phrase, this is the new better versus this is the new normal. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you on that. Uh, you Lisa, can. I, I don't have the whole history of Aon, but I would love to have you maybe recreate. My sense is your company has grown superbly both by organic growth and by some acquisition. You've had some acquisitions even as of late. Have there been any unique challenges that you faced where you've just recently closed on some new acquisitions and how you've had to manage through expectations, uh, mismatched um, ideas on how we should do things on, on our company versus the new company? Talk us through any of that that others might relate to. I think the biggest thing right now, again, with the, the uncertain times has been communication and making sure that we communicate. It's been difficult, you know, to not to hit every single milestone or expectation of, 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 of timelines because a lot of things got put on hold or there was a change in how things were doing. So I think that's one thing. So communication has been really critical. Uh, and then again, I think it goes back to spending time being super curious, listening, understanding where people are coming from, uh, other organizations are coming from, what they're dealing with. Uh, the one thing is there isn't a roadmap for this. So it isn't, there isn't a company that's been through this before. So we're, um, we're all going through it maybe in different ways. And so it's, it's just trying to understand that and trying to be supportive. Lisa, let's get practical for a moment. So you have a lot of facilities, a lot of offices. 
Can you talk through what's Aon doing in terms of your own preparation for the reentry plan? Do you have a sense and a timeline what that looks like? What are some of the key issues you're discussing and protocols that you're putting in place that our listeners and viewers can learn from and perhaps calibrate or adapt to their own organization? So Scott, I'm really happy that you did not say uh, return to work because I know that well, that's we're been a, it's- We're working. <laughs> that, that acronym, I'm like, wait a minute, you can't say return to work. Everybody's been working. So we, uh, we actually have been doing quite a bit for our clients also. So trying to help them to figure out again, what's the right time to maybe re-enter into, uh, into your offices? Um, will it look the same? Can it look different? So a couple of things I say, again, thinking the new better is how do you reimagine things? I think one of the things that we've realized is that we're very good at working virtually and that we can connect with people. That doesn't replace you know, the human interaction. I think everybody likes to have that, but there are some incredible efficiencies that can come out of it. We've had, uh, so we're doing a lot for our clients. So as we're working for our clients, I'm actually a client of Aon. So Aon is helping me to figure out, all right, how are we gonna um, re-enter into our office spaces? Um, so we're obviously taking the lead of, uh, of the municipalities and the states in terms of, you know, when is it gonna be safe to, to return? Uh, and then we're also making it very clear to our colleagues that uh, they can return when they're comfortable and they're ready. We started doing pulse surveys right away um, within, I want to say, this, the second week in April to hear from our colleagues about concerns. Uh, we also have been doing surveys by geography and by offices. So in Asia, we have a couple of offices that have opened. Uh, New Zealand is opening up this, this week. We've had Singapore open and close. So we've, wa we, we've watched this cycle happen. I think that the big thing is really understanding where people are at. Um, and it's not just returning to the office that you have to think about. And this is what our colleagues are telling us. It's how am I going to get there? Do I have to get on a train to get right, there? Right. Um, my kids don't have school. I don't. What am I going to do with my kids during the day? I've, I've kind of created this new this new environment. Then there's the other side of it, which is the colleagues that are, you know, that are ready to go back and they're, they're desiring to go back. So we're really trying to figure out how do we, again, how do we reimagine ourselves and, and rethink, you know, what the traditional mindset would have been before of everybody has to go back to, are we more efficient and more effective in some cases uh, working virtually? And the, and absolutely the answer is yes, in many cases. So there isn't a one size fits all, Scott, but I will say that you know, you have to kind of go geography by by geography and really understand. And at the at the forefront of it all is the safety safety of our colleagues and and their families. So we're not going to make any decisions that would ever put anyone in harm's way. I hear a couple of things in there. One is that there may be some some colleagues at Aon that once were, went to an office every day, and that they might actually be empowered or choose to work virtually in the future, even when it's safe to come back to the office if that's what works best for them and for their contribution. Is that right? Absolutely. And then I'm guessing 100%. that there are some colleagues that will choose to come back in a physical facility. Can you speak to what it looks like? You know, what, what does the office, I, I, I lived in Chicago for six years. I passed the Aon building there every day on the way downtown to the Franklin Covey office, like a beautiful building there. What is that going to look like when it's open? Do you think you'll have temperature checks and thermal scanners and different, will, will cubicles be here? Can you speak to how conference rooms will change and will there be cafeterias? What, what are your thoughts around that? 
Well, a couple of things. And one of the one of the really important parts of, uh, of our interaction is with our clients also. So we spend a lot of time with our clients. So going to their 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 places of business. And so we have to solve for that as well. So when we have colleagues go visit a client, you know, we have to make sure that we're supporting the protocols of that right. of that business. Right. But honestly, I don't know exactly what it will look like. I I will tell you what we're seeing now is it, it is where where we're opening. We're opening again. Colleagues are going in with flex schedules, so maybe they'll work, work a day a day or two in the office, and then they'll work from from home the other days. Um, so when we say we're opening up an office, maybe ten percent of the of the colleagues will come back. Uh, I heard a really. Uh, I heard from one of my peers. They said maybe offices will become collaboration centers. That that will be where we go to to collaborate because the reality is there is so much that we can do from a digital and a virtual virtual perspective, uh, and this really this exponentially moved us to that quicker. I also think for us, you know, we've been on this journey around Aon United, which is really about you know one firm around our. Our, all around our, our clients and helping them to be successful. And there's only there's really only two jobs in our firm. We say this all the time. You, you're either serving clients or you're serving people who serve clients. And so we're going to have to adapt, be nimble and flexible and figure out, you know, what's going to work because our clients are changing too. They don't have the exact answer to, yeah. you know, how are they going to be returning? We're looking at those things too. So Aon has the ability through data and analytics to look at that and to be able to help our clients make those decisions too. So just like they'll tell me, like here's a group of people that really never need to return. Like they could they could they could work virtually forever if they choose to. Um, and I think a lot of this is going to be about putting uh, some of those choices in, in front of the colleagues in the beginning at least, uh, just because we need to make sure people are comfortable. In terms of the question around temperature checks and those things, I, again, I think that will depend upon um, each each state, each yeah. municipality, um, whether there's an elevator, whether it's a large building, whether it's you know the, all those things are going to there's going to be there's going to be a lot to that. And we've got a phenomenal uh, chief risk officer who will uh, who will lead us through that. It, it, listening to you, it's it's the only word I can think of is surreal, and I used this word on one of the previous interviews because you know, I'm, I'm almost 52. I've been around the block, not through a pandemic, obviously, but when you really kind of take in the gravity of the situation, it can, it can overwhelm you. What advice would you give to otherwise resilient leaders like me, right, that are going, people like you, that when you really face the enormity of the impact, the disruption, the trauma, the death, the fear, the panic, how do you encourage people otherwise very competent, resilient leaders to kind of keep it going? It, it, so there are a couple of things, you know, our, our CEO, the first week that he did his, uh, his iPhone message to us, and he was so authentic and real. So I think that's one is being authentic and real. But he shared three things, which was, you know, we were always going to keep our, um, our colleagues, our clients and our firm at the front of every decision we were going to make. The second thing was that we were we were going to 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 stay in reality, and and be very strong on like here's the reality of where we're at and be honest with that, and then finally focus on what you can control. Uh, there's a lot we can't control, but there's a lot we can control, and so this is really a lesson in that I think for leaders is um, we have to make that decision to to really rise to 
understand the reality of what we're in, but also be able to create uh, places for people to go to feel like they, they're being productive, uh, that, that we can move to something that's better. Like out of this, something better can happen. And the only way that will happen will be by the decisions that we make now, which um, do come with, again, they come with lots of different challenges, but there are some really good things that will have come out of this in terms of, of how we work. Uh, as long as we're looking to that. And I think that's the biggest thing is uh, making the decision, you know, I, and, and, and this is a good, I'll just, I was talking to a colleague and I was having a bad, I was, wasn't having a great day. And, you know, you put on the face as a leader. Uh, I called him up and, and, and uh, I said, how are you doing? And he looked great. And he's like, oh, he's like, I, I'm walking on a treadmill while I, he put his laptop on the treadmill and he was, he's like, I'm walking on the treadmill. I've lost all this weight. And, and he said, and I get to see my kids every day and I get to have dinner with them every night. And, and just that was like, it, it was different than him, yeah. you know, saying, you know, oh my gosh, my kids. And, and that doesn't mean you don't have those moments, but he clearly made a decision like to see that the bright side of it, and I'm certainly not Pollyanna about how difficult this is, but I think as leaders, we have to find that ability to say, okay, where's the good things that, co that come out of this? That's a shaming story, because I'm not looking forward to seeing my kids again for lunch and dinner tonight. I could use a break <laughs> from them. But I've got three boys, um, six, eight, and 10, and they all have my oh. personality, so my wife's ready to flee right now. <laughs> uh, Lisa, final question. I hope question. we get a lot for her on Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mother's Day was, um, as I was informed, it was... Um, she felt it was more like Father's Day than Mother's Day, to quote her. So I've got, hey, I bought her a Peloton. So unfortunately, it's like three months delayed. So Mother's Day is not coming until July. Let me uh, ask you this final thought. Fast forward 18, 24 months. Let's say that we have a, vir we have a um, vaccine and that it's not reemerged the virus and that things are calming down. Uh, speak to the competencies of the future workforce at Aon and beyond. What are some competencies that you think we're all going to need to show more of, dig, dig deeper in, that perhaps right now we maybe take for granted and don't um, demonstrate as much? What does what the thriving workforce of the future look like to you? So I think leaders are definitely going to have to be more authentic and real. And you can't completely separate your personal life from your professional one doesn't mean you know we have to disclose everything, but um, but I think that so I think the empathy piece, being authentic, is is one, uh, and and that can make that can be there's all sorts of really incredible things that can come out of that. I think team building uh, is going to be huge. So how you build teams so that. Uh, you know, if you're an incredible individual contributor and you've done a really good job and you're and you're managing individual contributors, that 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 can be great. But I think in this environment, that ability to collaborate and work with other people, it becomes more more critical than ever. And so as we think 18, 24 months down the road, how how are we going to make sure we're building high performing teams? So that's going to be a, a really important skill to me. Is like, what are you doing to build high performing teams um, that work well together? Where you're centering your goals? So I think goal setting is going to be a really big deal. Like, how do you set your goals differently in this in this new better? How do you you know how do you think about things? And then what are the things that exponentially can happen 
to really shift to shift businesses. And for Aon, I think for us, you know, we're going through a, a, a major integration with Willis Towers Watson. We have an incredible opportunity as an organization, as two organizations, to come together in a very different way. You know, we're meeting and like we're meeting and greeting virtually. And so 18, 24 months from now, when we're, when we're, when we're one organization, uh, what we can provide to our clients from this experience um, of how to problem solve, um, how to think about, okay, how do you do things differently than you've done before? Um, being really super creative is, it's going to be big. And it, it's, uh, so again, there's, like you said, it's surreal, but uh, that, but there's a lot that can come out of this that will be extremely powerful for, I think, for our organization and for many organizations um, over time. And again, I say that over time because I think that until you, there is a vaccine or some type of treatment, um, we just don't know exactly how things are going to go. And we've got we've got to stay nimble and flexible. Lisa Stevens, Chief People Officer from Aon, thank you for joining us. We wish your mother great health. Thank your brother and his partner for their service to the New York City um, uh, survivors as well. And for those, I'm sure they've had a, um, a fascinating time, right, to share. Glad your brother is doing well. And great success with your husband's coming heart surgery. You're going to come out of this stronger because there's no other choice, right? you got a lot. That's exactly a lot, right. A lot going on. Thank you for your time. Delighted to have you on our, on our four-part uh, segment today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for joining you. By far our longest interview series in our 100 plus episodes. We hope this was valuable. Four separate interviews. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership, please visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab, subscribe, rate it, rank it, review it. Now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership. And we'd love to have you be part of that family every week. Hope you find this valuable. Stay safe and we'll see you back here next week.